So um, tomorrow after the services, they're gonna be, there's going to have um, lunch up here, and I'm going to talk about China. So, you know, it hasn't worked out with just the kind of what we've been trying to do this weekend to give you all a lot of stories and details about what we do there. But, man, I would love to get to see you tomorrow. Um, I think it's going to be right after church. So come hear about what Salt Network, what C2C, what we've been dreaming and praying about for really 15 years and where we're praying that God's going to take us after COVID opens up the world again um, and it's gone and, the, and, the, and what God's going to do over this next decade. So that'll be tomorrow. You get fed again if you show up. And so, yeah, that's pretty good. All right. So last night we talked about life in this kingdom. We talked about how Christ has offered us something that's amazing to be plundered from the darkness and brought into his kingdom and, and, and how often we take that for granted and miss the grace that has come into our lives to transform us. And so tonight, we're gonna keep looking at that, but we're gonna look at it from a little bit of a different angle. We're gonna look at it at how now that produces the greatest call in our lives to join him in his kingdom work. And, and here's the thing, like all of us, we were talking outside, me and some of the students, and it was actually all ladies, and we were talking about just this year and what we're learning, and one of the things we all agreed on is that if we're trying to find coherence and clarity in a story through this year that has us at the center of it, we're going to lose our minds. And yet, all of us desperately need that. We need a narrative. We need a coherent narrative that brings us into something that's bigger than us and has movement and has purpose. And Jesus is inviting us to link our story with his story. And when you find something that will bring meaning and purpose into your story, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And you'll give your life to it. And what you're going to see tonight is that Jesus is asking for nothing less than your commitment, everything that you have. And, and the way I like to look at commitment is like, it's this idea of putting all your weight on something so that if it fails, you fall down. You're not really committed to something unless you're vulnerable. Like if you have one foot over here and one foot over here and you're just trying to play both sides, that's not commitment. And so Jesus is going to ask you to be vulnerable to him, to be all in. So will you stand for the reading of the word? We'll be in Luke chapter 9, um, verse 57. So the gospel of Luke chapter 9, verse 57. So this, this passage that we're going to read, it precedes the, the passage that is the most famous passage in Luke, in, in the Salt Network, Luke 10.2, right? And so this is what happens right before that whole, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. So in verse 57, as they were going along, this is Jesus and his disciples, they're going along to Jerusalem. This is toward, even though it's in the middle of the gospel of Luke, this is at the end of Jesus' life. Everything from this chapter leads him right to the cross. So he's heading to Jerusalem, and he says, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, hey, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and to send out labors into the harvest. You may be seated. It's the word of the Lord. And so, man, I, I absolutely love this passage um, because you get Jesus in, in a way that a lot of times we don't really deal with him in. You know, these, and I, again, read as we read that, put yourself on the road. You're with Jesus. You're walking along the road. You're excited to be a part of some movement. And these three guys run up to Jesus and they want to be a part of what he's doing. And it's like, Jesus just blows up their life. It's like, what happened, Jesus? Did you have a bad taco? Like, are you in a bad mood? Like, are you not about recruiting people? Like, did you not get, did Peter grab the last beef taco and you had the, 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 the veggie one? Sorry. It's like, what happened? Because like that almost happened at lunch today, but they were nice enough to let me have that one. So like, because look, the first guy runs up and he's like, man, hey, I will follow you. And it's Jesus sees right into his soul, right? And he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So basically he's saying, hey, there's no assurance about comfort if you follow me. But you'll have me, is that enough? So he communicates sacrifice and he says, follow me. And then the second guy, you know, he's like, hey, I need to go home and bury my dad. My dad is, is dying. And so, look, most people think that it didn't mean his father had just died. It probably meant his father was sick and that he was willing to, he wanted to go home and wait for that to happen. And Jesus says, hey, I have to take priority over your family. The urgency of the kingdom, because you see what he says, leave the dead to bury their dead, but it's for you. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It takes precedence. The good news must go out. And then the third guy must be a sucker for punishment, because if you've watched the first two guys just get laid out by Jesus, at this point in time, I would have been like, I was walking toward him, and then I just would have started walking off. (laughs) Hey, you. No, 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 I'm good. I have something else to do. But he's like, okay, I'll follow you. And But he said, I need to go home and have a party first. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying you must be single-minded, one focus, one heart, one passion now and forever. So you may think that Jesus is being unkind and ruthless, but we have a saying in our community and it's clear as kind. Clear is kind and Jesus is being as kind as he can be because he's being incredibly clear. He's saying, if you wanna be a part of my movement, if you wanna be a part of me, it's gonna cost you everything. But in its place, you'll get everything. And he's aware that, that, that there are things in our lives, idols that are gonna keep us from really wanting to wholeheartedly follow him and that we're harboring those idols. Like, you know, you can summarize those into maybe it's the idols of comfort, maybe it's power for you, maybe it's approval. Maybe it's security. Those are like the four big ones we often would be like, hey, those are like hard, hard idols, comfort, approval, power, security. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't hold on to both of those. You can't have comfort and courage. Do you really, they're almost mutually exclusive. If you try to be courageous, it's hard to be comfortable. If you try to be comfortable, it's hard to be courageous, you know? And, and so, man, he looks at that guy who wants to follow him and says, you can't have both of those. And the guy about the father, he says, you know what? You can't hide behind your family. Like, I have to be the priority. And probably the one who's, who wants to go back and have the party is maybe the most dangerous because he's saying, you know what? You have, to be, you have to not be distracted. You have to keep your eyes on me. 
And so this is about absolute commitment with no conditions. So if you run up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but whatever follows the but is what you really want, right? You know what I mean? Like somebody who was taking me home last night, I'm not going to say who Jacob, I mean, was it? yeah, it was Jacob. He was like, he's like, I'm not a hippie, but like whatever comes after the but is really what he means to say. And what he basically was saying, I'm a hippie. He was complaining about driving a truck because it burns fuel and is destroying the, the world and all that. So it's like whatever you, you say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but, and that's it. That's what you want. Like you got to understand it. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I need safety. Well, then safety is more important than Jesus. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I need to stay within 90 miles of my family. Then family has now become more important. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I need comfort. I need the house. I need the car. I need it all. Then it's not Jesus. Jesus is just a, a means to something. And here's one of the most incredibly cool things about Jesus, whether you like it or not. Jesus will not help you commit adultery. He will not help you find other lovers. Like, he's jealous. He's jealous of you. He loves you too much to say, you know what? You're right. It's good. I'm just going to share you with someone else. Like, I'm into that. Like, you know, it wouldn't make sense if like a man and a woman are getting married and the woman looks at the man and says, hey, I love you, but I'm going to need to have a few other lovers on the side. Like the day of the wedding, you want to run, right? You run from that. And Jesus is not that guy who's like, you know what? I'll take you, but I'll take you with all of your other lovers. He'll take you and help you get rid of those guys so that you have him and him alone. He's gracious. So he's not looking for perfection. He's not looking for, for you to be perfect. Like he said, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. He's going to put his finger on it. And with these three people, he's saying, I know what it is that you really want. And if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to lay those aside this is what commitment looks like. It means putting all of your weight on something so that if it falls, you're done. It's pushing all in. So some of you, you understand football. Like it, there's this play called the play action pass. I should have got the football and we could have used it right now. So in the play action pass, if you're the quarterback, you know what you're trying to do with the play action pass? You're trying to fool linebackers. So middle linebackers, these linebackers are in the middle of the field. They play the run and the pass and you're trying to make them commit. And so you fake the handoff so they take one step, or not even a step, but they lean in. And while they're leaning in, the receiver goes behind them and you throw the ball over their head. Now, you could say, well, why do they even lean in? What if they make no decision? Then they've already lost. If they don't go forward, they can't stop the run. If they don't go back, they can't stop the pass. And so the whole thing is about making them commit because once you've committed, you know where they're going. Jesus is calling us to commit to one thing or the other, and you see the urgency of why. I love, look, you know, one of the worst things about the Bible are chapters and verses, because sometimes you almost put those in there as like artificial stops. So it's like, how many times have you read Luke 10 2 and didn't connect what happened right before it? Why is he being so urgent and so just ruthless with the commitment that he's calling us to? Because he was about to send 72 people out into the harvest and he was about to send them out as leaders to call other people out of darkness into the light. And he didn't want half-hearted obedience. He wanted people that were gonna be all in because he knew what was at stake, people's lives. Another thing I love about this story is that you don't see how these three people respond. Do you know why it was written that way? I'm, I'm guessing, but that's good story writing, right? Because it draws you and I into the story so that we're not so concerned about how they responded, but that you and I have to think about how would we respond. 
So how would we respond? How do we respond? Because last time I checked, this Jesus is still alive. And he reigns. And he's worthy of our complete commitment. And he's calling us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. He says, if you seek to save your life here, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. For what does it profit a person if they, if they gain the world but lose or forfeit their soul? So how would we respond when he says, come after me, come after me, what is the thing that comes after the but? But Jesus, and so I know what happens right now. If you're in, if you're leaning in and listening, there's a war that's happening inside you because none of us are there yet. There's all of us, me right now. I'm not sitting up here telling you I have no challenges anymore every day. It's a new day to have to lay aside things that I want that are not always in line with Christ. And so what's the challenge for us right now? What is it that's pulling at you? What is it that maybe is sometimes even more essential to who you are than the words of Jesus? What's more important to you than the relationship that you have with Jesus? What's more valuable to you than his love? Whatever that is, is what's warring with you and, and, and making you think, man, maybe I, it's too costly to lay this aside to follow Jesus. Maybe Jesus is just too radical. Maybe this is too cultic to do this. Is it worth it? And Jesus would say, yes. So let, let's talk about, so that first point that we were just looking at is that Jesus calls us to die. Like, it's just simple. He doesn't mince words. He says, die, die to yourself, die to your ego, die to your plans and follow me because what you will get is a life that is eternal and amazing. Die. So what's the problem with that? Dying sucks. And it's hard. So the trouble with dying is dying. <laughs> so let's talk about it for a minute. Look with me at Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter 3, this is a great snapshot of how Paul enters into this question about what we do when we feel this war going on in our soul between what God wants for us and what maybe we want, even though it's not the best. Colossians chapter 3, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, we're still in the New Testament. If then you have been raised with Christ, sorry, verse one, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So he's talking to Christians. If you've been raised with Christ, that means you've trusted in him, you've been buried with him, you've been resurrected to a new life right now spiritually, and you will be raised with him one day to a real physical new life. But he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. We talked about this this morning, reading the word. Set your minds, but it's not just your minds, it's your heart. But set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see how crazy this is? This makes zero sense. The idea that Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, die to everything else, makes zero sense unless you realize Jesus is your life. Like if Jesus is a Thursday night salt thing, if Jesus is just a weekend thing, this is stupid and maybe you're not rude and walk out tonight, but you should, you should reconsider <laughs> But when you start to realize that he's the treasure and he's the king and he has rights, but he's the loving redeemer and he's saying, I'm your life, then all of a sudden this call to give him everything makes perfect sense. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, this is your life. It's hidden in him. So look what we do. Verse five, put to death, murder, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And so Paul comes right at it and he says, look, look, there's that struggle, whatever's coming after the butt, murder it, put it to death, don't play with it. There's these things that are in our life that we know that, that keep us from following God wholeheartedly, and I like to call them pet sins. Pet, because usually pets are cute and adorable, and we like to love on them and water them, yeah, if it's a chia pet, and feed them, and they grow, sorry. <laughs> you are like, chia pets, what is that? All right, but they're, they're cute, and, and, and but pet sins are these things that we think we're controlling, but they really control us. It's the idea like a pet sin would be a struggle that's present in a believer's life that is often kept locked away from the light and the knowledge of others. So it's something that's locked away and you don't let it come into the light. While believers will rarely argue for the good of these sins, they nonetheless keep them secret for numerous reasons whether that be the shame and guilt and fear around that sin. You don't want people to know, you just don't wanna feel worse, so you hide. Maybe it's the pleasure of it, because hey, sin can be fun, at least temporarily, instant gratification. So maybe it's just the fun around it, or maybe it's the false understanding of the real impact it's having on your life. You're not really looking ahead and seeing what it's doing, or maybe it's how core it is to your identity and to your meaning. But for some reason, we don't want to let people in. So imagine it's like there's this house, it's your life, and there's this one room in the house that's often locked away. People can go into any room they want, but there's one room that no one has access to but you, and you're like, it's not hurting anyone. And so, like, you know, some of these things cross over. Like, we could talk about typical pet sins, and, and, and Paul mentioned sexual sin and impurity, and, like, we live in a culture where pornography is just rampant, it's everywhere, and it's not just guys, it's girls, like, we've had it in front of us all our life, but, and, but it's not just about porn, it's about the promise behind porn, it's about what it's trying to give us, comfort and love and, and, and security, and it doesn't give any of those things, it destroys our hearts, and, and, and like I said, it, it's not just a guy thing, maybe it's emotional lust, maybe it's just how easy it is for you to, to just to find your meaning with, with, by someone else giving you attention, maybe it's random hookups, you know, with other people where it, that's where you find excitement and love. Maybe it's your body and, and it leads you to think your worth is based on how you look compared to others. Maybe it's gossip and excluding others and you feel better if, if you're seen as more important than people. But whatever your pet sin might be, it ends up destroying us. It ends up taking over our lives. And there's a reason that Paul says murder it. Like, have you seen, like, I tried to watch a few minutes of, the, of Tiger King. I mean, it was like, trend, it was the biggest thing on Netflix for at least three weeks. That's sad about our country. There's a lot of things that make me sad. But that one being the number one show on Netflix, I think it was a lie. But anyway, like, I tried to watch it. It's like, oh, my gosh, I felt dumber for every second I invested in it. But it, it is amazing. Like, these people are like, I don't know what happened. I brought the tiger home. He was three pounds. He was so cute. I fed him. We slept together. It was amazing. And then one day he took my arm off. I'm like, 
He took your arm off because he's a meat eater and he's 600 pounds and it doesn't matter how much you try to tame a lion or a tiger, one day he'll look at you and be like, mm, dinner. It's over. And yet these guys and girls are putting their heads in their mouth and they're like, oh, this is great. And every single time, eventually it ends with the same story. Like the guy that lived with the bears in Alaska, you're going to get eaten. And that's exactly why Paul says, don't play with it. Murder the stuff. Murder it. I mean, he's saying, whatever it is, whatever you're struggling with, don't water it. Don't pretend it's cute. He's saying, go Old Testament on it. I'm talking about put two bullets in the head, another three in the chest, and then take a, an axe and just go after it. And then pour gasoline all over it, set it afire, let it burn, and then bury it and forget you ever knew where that thing was buried. Don't play, because this stuff will kill us. Yet I say all that, and unless you have walked into church for the very first time, none of this is new. Like, you're not sitting there like, oh, you're right. Gosh, porn is bad for me, you know? Hooking up with random people is bad for me. Like, comparing myself to other people is bad for me. Like, like you know these things. Like, gossiping about people is bad. Like, you know these things. So, so why don't we put them to death? Like, this isn't new to you, and I'm not just standing up here trying to make you feel bad. Like, but Jesus is saying, follow me, and, and there's these things in our life that are so important to us and so real to us and so significant that we won't follow him with all of our heart, and we won't deal with him, we won't let people in, and so why do we continue in it, even if we already know the truth around it? And here, you're going to have to follow me for a few minutes. Here's what I think is what's happening I think these sins, these, these pet sins, are so, in, are so intricately linked to our identity that we can't imagine life without them. So, you know, when we talk about identity, we're talking about a combination of self-knowledge and self-regard. So your identity is something that doesn't change like the core of who you are. It doesn't change as you move from one group to another or one sport to another or one, one relationship to another. It's who you are in all of those situations. And so it's a combination of what you know about that and how you feel about that. And so I'm just gonna take a moment here to try to like pull out this out and, and explain it to you. And, and I'm gonna let someone much smarter than me do it. He's a guy named Tim Keller. And there's a book called Making Sense of God. And my buddy David Livingston, I don't know, three, four years ago, was visiting, he was over in China, and he had it, and I took it from him. Because that's the fun thing about being a missionary. Like, whenever someone has a book, you're like, dude, I want that, you know? Like, and, and so I got it from him, he left it for me, you remember that? And it's one of my favorite books. Keller's my favorite pastor, writer, like, I'm just regurgitating him most of the time. Look, he talks about this in that book, and he says, there's two ways that we find our identity. There's two big ways. One is we can achieve our identity or we discover it. So that's one side. Over here, you can achieve it or discover it. And over here, you can receive an identity. Okay, so for more traditional societies, shame and honor societies, it was all about achieving it. And the way you achieved it, it was always linked to your roles as a father, as a husband, as a son, 
as a worker, a farmer, a soldier, whatever your role was and how it fit into society, if you did that role well, that meant you had a good identity. You had a strong identity. If you, if you, if you shirked that role, you had a bad identity. And so like a movie that's kind of dated now, but a movie called 300, where it's about these Spartans fighting against thousands and thousands of Persians. These 300 men don't think twice about being willing to lay their life down and die for their country because their whole identity is linked to fighting to protect other people. And they know they're gonna live on in the songs and the dreams of their people. So they're willing to die that day because their identity is achieved. So if you're in that type of culture and your father was a carpenter and his father was a carpenter and his father was a carpenter or his mom was a carpenter, you are going to be a carpenter. So you may come home and be like, dad, I just wanna be an actor. And he's gonna be like, sorry, son, you're gonna be a carpenter. But dad, I, I just feel like I'm a thespian. Like I gotta do it, you know, and good luck. And so you pack it up and you go to the next town and they're like, why are you here, son of carpenter? I want to be an actor. Oh, we already have an actor. We don't need you. But you, can be, but you can't be a carpenter because we already have a carpenter. Like, that was how most societies you would find your identity. We, we live in a little bit of a different time, and that's good. There's some good progress. Um, in our culture, we have a more modern approach, and this is how we discover or achieve our identity. You are whatever you want to be. You are whatever you want to be. That's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And so, to quote a philosopher of our time, I'll try not to sing this, the Queen of Arendelle tells us, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules, I'm free. Like. I've heard that song way too many times with kids. And she, and I'm not trying to hate on Frozen, but she just epitomized the centerpiece of our culture. You, there's no rules, there's no wrong, it's just you figure it out. And so here's the message that you and I have, we have, we have, we have been drinking of this since we were born. You can be whoever you wanna be. You decide your path and live. You determine your values, you determine your gender, you determine your sexual orientation, you determine what you're gonna be about and run. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone place their expectations over you. And that sounds amazing. That sounds incredibly liberating, right? But it's incredibly terrifying. It's like if someone says, there's no road, you make your own. No one can tell you what to do. No one can tell you whether you made it or not. You just figure it out. That sounds amazing, but we both know that that is just scary. And we also know that it's a little bit of a farce, right? Because the world around us says, do what you want to do, but I'm going to judge you on it, by the way. <laughs> like, I promise you, that social media will tell you whether or not you made a good choice today. People will tell you whether or not that was the right shirt to wear or whether that was the right career or whether you sucked when you were singing karaoke. Like, they will tell you. They will tell you whether your identity measures up or not. And so there's this idea in American society called scarcity. It is a super important idea to understand because we're drinking of it every day. Scarcity is the idea that there's never enough, that you'll never be enough. You'll never have enough money, you'll never have enough power, you'll never have enough security because someone else always has more. Someone else always has more. 
And so you, you see it all the time, and we drink it in. And so the, the world is saying, like, man, you need to do more. And so that creates all kinds of tension and anxiety and fear so that we're feeling like, man, I've got to climb this ladder. So let me, let me just explain for a moment why that, this is problematic. I'm kind of telling you, but I'm just going to make it really simple. The idea of achieving or discovering your own identity it's broken in so many ways, and it's what leads to idolatry. It's what leads to your heart clinging to things that are less than the best. It's what leads you to thinking, man, if I'm great at sports, or if I have the right woman, or if I have the right man, I'm going to be accomplished. Well, here's why it doesn't work. For one, it's incoherent. Remember where we started? We need coherence. We need clarity. Your desires are incoherent. If you just look within you to figure out what you should do and be and go toward, tell me how that works. Are you not a complex, contradictory mess at times? You know what I mean? Like we have incoherent desires all the time. Like for instance, I might want a six pack, but I also want to eat all the bacon they don't fit. You know what I mean? Like they don't go together. You know, maybe I want to have a 4-0 in college, but I also want to mess around and play all the time and see my friends. Maybe you want to be courageous and comfortable like we were talking about earlier, but they're incoherent. Imagine this, you're in a relationship, you see your friend doing something devastating to their life, and you have a choice right then. Are you going to be courageous or comfort? Comfortable. And they're, both of those desires are pulling at you. So if you're going to be courageous, you like step into it and you say something to them in a gentle and humble way. Hopefully you handle it well. But I promise you, you're about to get uncomfortable because if it's something that that person really loves and it's dear to them, they're about to fight you. Or you can choose comfort and not courage and you're going to have to sit there and watch them continue to do that and you knew that you were a coward. So our desires are incoherent. If I look within me, like, I mean, I could sit up here and scare you guys. I've been married 13 years. It's like one sense, there's one desire is like, oh, I want to be faithful to my wife. Another desire is like, oh, I could just be crazy and go and live and do whatever I want to do. Like those things are, they're there. They're not coherent. I can't just listen to whatever impulse pops out of me. So it's incoherent. Another thing about our desires is they're elusive. If we attempt to let our desires shape who we really are, they're elusive at best. It's not as if anyone can define in this world when there's no right or wrong what target we're supposed to hit. So when do you know that you've accomplished anything? If you're climbing a 14er in Colorado, you know. You get to the top, there's a thing there in the ground, and you take a picture, and then you die, and then you walk down. That's just me. I, I do it for pride, I don't, but it's terrible. But you know you got there, but in this sense, there's no top. You just keep going and going and going. Every time you get to a top, it's a false peak. It's elusive, it, it, and, and the people around you will say, that's not enough. Because here's the problem with looking to anything other than Jesus Christ to be the full satisfaction that our heart needs it will always find a way to let us down. Like, you don't have to be a philosophy major to understand that finite things that are temporary and changing and moving away from us are not gonna be enough to bring rest to your restless spirit. We were created by an infinite God to be satisfied with nothing less than an infinite God. And so it'll never be enough. Like, my favorite, I love Hamilton soundtrack. I know it's a little dated now, but whatever. But, but that song, like, You'll Never Be Satisfied is the best song in the whole thing. 
because it's the most truthful song. And so for Alexander Hamilton, the idea was like, you're writing like you're running out of time because he knew that he had to do everything he could to try to make a difference in the short amount of time he had. And so here's the last, so it's incoherent, it's elusive, and here's probably the most ridiculous part about looking inside to be defined. It's impossible to grant yourself value. You cannot look in the mirror and grant yourself value. You need someone from outside of you to speak over you, to ground you in who you are. I, I mean, well, take a silly example. Let's say spiteball, and let's say it's one of you and you're terrible. I'm not point, looking at anyone, okay? <laughs> just, I'm not looking at anyone. But just say you're terrible and everyone knows it, but you like, keep going to the bathroom and looking at yourself, you're like, I'm amazing at spike ball. I'm amazing at spike ball. See, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'm amazing at spike ball. And then you come out and you just get beat 21 to zero every time and your, your partner's just like, oh my gosh. And, and you're the only person in the room that believes you're amazing at spike ball, but you don't believe it. You know it. You cannot speak that over you. You cannot tell yourself something. You need to hear it from someone outside of you. And it's not just anyone. The weightier the person is, the more important the person is, when they speak over you, it will devastate you or it will elevate you, right? Like when someone who you don't even know walks up to you and is like, hey, man, you're great. If someone walks up to me tomorrow with my kids and my wife that are here, going to be here, and they say, you're a great dad, and they don't know me, I'm going to be like, creepy. But if like... David, who knows me more than this stranger, walks up and like, John, I've been really encouraged to see how you parent and love your wife. That's going to build me up because he knows me and I know him. So we need someone to speak. And, and, and here's the thing about people speaking over us. I don't, what is it about our souls that are Velcro for negativity and Teflon for positive things? You know what I mean? Like, if someone says 10 great things about you, but they say one shitty thing about you, sorry, that's the only thing you care, you remember, right? That's the only thing you remember. Like, I can tell you about this one coach when I was eight years old in baseball who told me I was scared. Like, I can remember that. Man, I played sports for years and did a lot of great things, but I remember that one guy. That's the power of words speaking over you. We're not free because we need someone to speak over us. We need someone to build us up. And this world is saying you are only as great, of, as great as what you have accomplished lately, what you possess presently, and what others think about you now. Your significance and your meaning is tied to what you possess, what people say about you, and what you do. And that creates an infinite amount of insecurity in our hearts. And that's why we hold on to pet sins. That's why we hold on to idols, because we think they're our life preservers. We think we're drowning without them, and we have to hold on to them. Otherwise, we won't have meaning and safety and security. But what we find out in the storms of life is those things that we're holding on to are the things that are actually drowning us. They're the weights that put us at the bottom. They don't bring us up. They drown us because they were never meant to carry us. They were never meant to make us whole. So if that's achieving or, or discovering an identity and that's all that America has been pouring over us, what does Jesus say is a way that we're supposed to get our identity? We're supposed to receive it. So a very counterintuitive, very important way is for us to receive an identity in the biblical worldview is that we receive the thing that's most fundamental and most core to who we are from God himself speaking over us in Jesus Christ. 
We receive our identity the moment that God says, I declare this person my daughter, my son, holy and beloved, chosen. He's mine. She's mine. She's mine for eternity. I knew her before I created the world, and I will know her forever. She's mine. He's mine. That's our identity. There are other things that are on top of that that are important, but there is nothing more fundamental and more core to who we are than the words of God, whose words could have more weight than the king of the universe. Whose words should have more glory and more power over us than Jesus Christ speaking that over us? And that's what he means. But guys, this takes time to get that in there. Like, I'm 43, and I've had revelations of how screwed up my identity is still today. Like, this last week, like, I had this moment of realizing that so much of my identity forever was tied to sports. I know you're like, you're short, white guy, and you probably can't jump. Yeah, okay. But... But growing up, I had this, like, I grew up in the age of Michael Jordan, and my room was an altar to Michael Jordan. Every square inch of my wall, every square inch of my ceiling was a poster of Michael Jordan posterizing people. Every commercial, everything I remembered was be like Mike. So even though I was living in a culture that was saying, hey, you're free to be or whatever you want to be, the, the culture was also screaming, this is what you really want to be, a six foot six African-American man who can play basketball better than anyone else on planet Earth. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. And so literally, like, man, I gave my life to basketball from the age of five to 18. It became everything. And even after I became a Christian, and even after that didn't work itself out in college and everything with basketball, I had moments of, of just super competitiveness where I drove people away by playing a game of spike ball and taking it like it was life and death. And I would just walk away and be like, man, I just need to stop being so competitive. I didn't ever connect it to, I had been drinking so deeply that this is who I am. If I'm not a great athlete and people don't see that I'm a great athlete, who am I? And so it's taken years for Jesus to be more important, <laughs> for Jesus to get under that. And you're like, oh man, I have no hope. You have hope. I'm stupid and slow. So it's just a process. So how, how do we get there? Because none of us want to be like the rich young ruler. You know that guy in Luke 18 who, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, and if you're rich and young and a ruler, you're probably great looking. <laughs> I just, probably back then, you're probably, so the guy's good looking, he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler, and he runs up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And listen to the words of Jesus to him. He says, why do you call me good? Because he walks up and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth. Here's Jesus. And he, said, he heard this and he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So I told this story. I coached uh, flag football um, this fall um, in Ames. My son was on the team, and I told the story to a whole bunch of seven-year-olds, and I paused right there, and I said, guys, what do you think happens? Do you know that every single one of the guys on the team said, seven-year-old boy said, they said he left everything and followed Jesus. I, I was blown away. 
I was blown away. I was blown away by how naive and pure our hearts are at seven. Because for them, it was a simple choice. (laughs) Jesus was standing in front of them and he was saying, you can have everything. You can be with me. Just leave this stuff and follow me. The stuff you're holding on to, you can't take it with you anyway. And I told them and they were like, no, what, why? I'm like, man, because that was his identity and he didn't know who he would be without that stuff. Jesus meets people all the time and doesn't say anything about leaving everything. But with this guy, he knew that that was more important than Jesus. So he said, you have to leave that or you'll never follow me really. And so what can we do if dying is hard, but we're called to die? Like, What are our resources for dying? What are our resources for dying, guys? Well, I'm gonna tell you, one of them, we saw this morning, don't take it for granted, spending time, lots of time, sustained time and space where you're quiet and God speaks over you the words of truth, that you're his daughter, that you're his son, that he is the God of wisdom and truth, that he's the hero, that he's the life, that he's the forgiveness. Those are the words we have to hear a billion times over. Those are the words, because as we hear those words, what happens is God gives us a sovereign joy. I say sovereign because it's a gift from him. It's not something you produce, but it becomes a joy that starts to move in your heart so that you want to follow him. It becomes the delight of your soul. It's not just a duty. You're not just begrudgingly follow Jesus. How, how honoring is it to anyone if you leave everything and you're just back there following Jesus like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Like you, that sucks. That doesn't make Jesus attractive or provocative. Like if you're the person like, oh, this is, I didn't want to do it, but you know, he's king. Like that's dumb. Go home. <laughs> like he wants you to be there. That's like showing up on, on, on like Valentine's and giving flowers to your girlfriend or wife and being like, wow, I had to do this. They were expensive and it was my duty, but I hope you enjoyed them. <laughs> Man, you better duck because you're about to get smoked in the face. Like that doesn't honor her. And so Jesus is going to give you a joy that will transform you. But part of that joy comes into your life through his word, through his truth. Because please make no mistake, because I think this would be a false gospel. So let me clarify if I've been bad at teaching. We don't start this journey by grace and then we follow Jesus in discipleship through our strength and our grit and our faithfulness. We start by grace. We die in grace. We grow in grace. We become more like him in grace. Jesus is in it from beginning to end so that he gets the glory. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's not asking you to do anything that he won't come into your life and give you the strength to do. So, so like if it's like you need to climb up this mountain because I did my part and now you have to earn the rest, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that I've come to die for you and I will live with you every day and I will help you see that I am better. I will help you get to a point where you can say with honesty to live as Christ and to die as gain because you become the kind of person who can weigh everything the world offers next to Jesus and say, that's rubbish. You made it, Jesus. (laughs) You're better. You say, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Everything is ours in Jesus. Why would I sacrifice those things for something I can't keep anyway? And so Jesus wants to give you a sovereign joy that will change your heart and that you will long for him and be willing to lay aside everything. And it starts with the word and prayer. It starts with that time. 
But there's another really, really important component or resource that, guys, you've been tasting of this whole weekend, community. Community is one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gives us. And it really could be the greatest because it's just Jesus giving us more Jesus. Because you have Jesus. And when I spend time with you and and we're being honest and vulnerable, then I'm learning more about Jesus by seeing Jesus in your eyes. And so community is this resource that he gives us so that we work out our stuff with other people. It's what Ronnie was talking about. And so here's just an easy way to think about community. I'm a redneck. I grew up in Louisiana on a farm. And so ATVs, all-terrain vehicles, so I use that for a way to remember this. In community, if it's gonna be transformative community, we need an ATV. We need to be available, we need to be transparent, and we need to be vulnerable. Community will not transform you and change you and help you lay aside everything that Christ doesn't want you to have unless you're available to be in community. And I know that's rocket science, but it's hard to be changed if you're not present with people. So part of being available is actually being with each other, but the other half of being available is actually being present when you are with people. You know what I mean? Like present, like where they know you're paying attention, where you're listening to them, where you're dialed in, your phone is probably turned over or put on silence, like you are there. And, and they know that the most important thing in the universe right then and there is that time. That kind of availability will start to open you up to be transparent. The idea about transparency is that think of a window, like those doors back there, you can see straight through it. Real community is a transparent community where we can see each other. You, you know how much energy we waste projecting something that's not real about our lives? You know how much energy we waste putting up armor to hide the stuff that's in here? If every single person in the community are all marked by grace, if every single person in the community is a part of the community because Jesus Christ has saved us by the same grace, by the same blood, if every single person didn't deserve it and God wasn't obligated but he gave it to us, then what do we have to hide? because we're all sinners, but we've all been saved by him. And so all of a sudden, all that energy we, we expend to hide ourselves and hide our weaknesses and hide our sins and hide our shame and our pet and all that, we can just say, look at me. This is what's happening. I'm a mix. I'm righteous and I'm a sinner. I'm loved and I'm broken. Will you come into this? I want to come into that life with you. I want to be a part of that. So we're transparent. And then here's the last one that's really hard. We're vulnerable. So what does vulnerability mean in that sense? It means this. So some of us are really good at saying, here's what's happening in my life, but when someone tries to lean in and help us, what do we normally do? We stiff arm. Uh, I'll figure this out on my own. I'll fix myself. Vulnerability says, I need you. Will you help me? It let, you let people actually get in there. Can I tell you that being available, being transparent, and being vulnerable equals an empathetic community, and empathy is the place where shame goes to die. It is hard to feel shamed and feel like you need to hide when the people who are around you see you and know you and still love you. You know what I mean? Like, that is transformative. Like, every single human being, probably even Hitler, wanted to be loved and known. Every single person, 
Like we want to be known, but the idea of being known but not loved is devastating. We're afraid of being rejected, but when people know you and they know the worst about you and they still love you, that is a safe place for you to grow. Like that's what we want and that's the community God is offering us. And guys, like nature understands this. I love planet Earth. There's this time where these spider crabs would all get together off of, the, off of Australia's great coast and they'd be out there on, the, on, on this great reef. And some of you have seen it. It's like hundreds of thousands of spider crabs are there. And you know what they're doing? They're not mating. They're losing their shells. And when they lose their shell, they're most vulnerable. And so it's during that time that manta rays and stingrays are coming in looking to to pick them off and eat them. They don't want the crabs with the shells. They want the crabs that have no shells because that's a lot better on your digestive system, I've heard. And so, you know what the spider crabs start doing? So the one, when the stingray flies in, the spider crabs start climbing on top of each other to protect the most vulnerable in their community. So all the ones with shells stack up on top of the ones with no shells. Like, if spider crabs know how to fight for each other and protect each other, should we not know how to do that? Like, come on. That's Jesus. He put that into nature. It's in our spirit. It's the, it's the world that drives us away from that. So let me end with the story. It's weird. And I like it. It's from C.S. Lewis. He's the best. It's a book called The Great Divorce. And it's a book about ghosts riding around in a bus. Weird. And they drive around basically the edge of heaven, looking in, and the ghosts represent people who are not whole, who are not in Christ, and they're looking in, and they're looking at people who've been changed. And so there's this one ghost that's been on the bus, and he's looking in, and this is what happens. It's about a ghost from hell, not very real, who comes to the outskirts of heaven and, and is looking longingly toward heaven, and an angel comes down to try to meet him. He has a little red lizard on, uh, on his shoulder, and the lizard doesn't want to go. So the ghost turns around very sadly to leave. The angel calls and says, hey, why are you leaving so soon? The ghost says, well, this little fellow here doesn't really want to go in that direction, so I can't. The angel says, um, would you like me to make it quiet? The ghost says, well, it would be a relief. Then I will kill it, said the angel. Oh, you didn't say anything about killing it. The angel says, it's the only way. May I kill it? The ghost, well, let's discuss that. There's no time. May I kill it? Oh, oh, look, it's, it's gone to sleep. I'm sure it won't be any trouble anymore. Yes, it will. May I kill it? Well, I think the gradual process is always better than no. The gradual process is of no use at all. May I kill it? Get back, get back. You're hurting me. You didn't tell me it would hurt me. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said I wouldn't kill you. May I kill it? Look, look, look. Let me run back to, by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor and then I'll come to you the, the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. May I kill it? Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud everyone could hear what it was saying. He can do it. He can kill me, and then what would you do without me? I admit that I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll be very good. May I kill it, said the angel. Oh, do it, get it over with, cried the ghost. God help me, God help me. Then the angel grabbed a hold of the lizard and broke its neck and threw it down. 
the ghost screams. And two amazing things happen. First of all, the ghost stops being ghostly and becomes radiant and gorgeous and bright and real and a human being, a man. The body of the red lizard, instead of disappearing, grows into a beautiful, powerful white horse. I told you this was weird. When, when, the new, when the new made man arose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been the liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. In joyous haste, the man leaped upon the horse's back. They were off like a shooting star on the green plain and were soon to the mountains. Still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, quicker ever moment, till at the brow of the landscape so high that I strained my neck to see them. They vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of what the everlasting morning. C.S. Lewis has a way of words to tell us that there's something that God's offering us, but I promise you there will be a whisper, not tonight, not tonight. I love that line where he says, this moment is all moments. Will you let me kill it? So here's the question I'm gonna ask you as we, as we leave and go into small groups in a moment. What is the worst thing that could happen if you were 100% honest with someone else tonight about your deepest struggles? What's the worst thing that could happen tonight if you were 100% honest with someone else tonight about your deepest struggles? What's the worst thing that could happen if you don't? So we often like think about what might happen if we are honest. Think for a moment what would happen if you're not. Three years, five years, 10 years down the road, what does it look like? There's a grace that Christ loves us with and he is offering us tonight. And he's saying, follow me. No buts, no conditions, just follow me and I'll give you life. Pray with me. Jesus, you're everything, you're everything, you're everything. Help me tonight and help every one of us in this room to let go of anything that is more significant, more fundamental, more core to who we are than your love and your grace over us. Start to remake us in your image so that we may follow you as disciples wherever you lead so that we may be a part of your story to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.